Hello, everyone. I'm Ed Mullins. Welcome back to The Point. With us today is Dr. Peter McCullough, a nation well-renowned doctor. Um, came to my attention, Doc, by a testimony you had in the state senate of Texas. Uh, I just saw you last night on Fox News. Um, what I'd like to talk about is the pandemic, COVID, uh, all the rumors surrounding it, treatment. But more importantly for the viewers, can you tell us about your background so we can lay out the level of expertise you have. Well, thanks for having me on the show. And it sounds like we have a lot to cover. So I'm an internist and cardiologist. I'm in a major academic medical center here in Dallas, Texas. I'm on the campus right now. Uh, I just saw patients downstairs and here in the office. Um, so I'm a medical doctor. Um, I'm also an academic physician. I'm the editor-in-chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine and Cardiorenal Medicine. Those are to medical journals, and <clears throat> I uh, spend my time a blend of patient care, research, administration, and teaching, and I have really turned my attention towards COVID-19 over the last year and a half. I think I've essentially completed a fellowship in infectious disease focused on SARS-CoV-2, the virus, and COVID-19. I really did that to fill a gap. I saw a, a tremendous gap developing in terms of lack of outpatient treatment no efforts to try to prevent hospitalization and death. Uh, and in the last several months, I've really turned my attention towards uh, the, the risks and the benefits of the vaccine as it really is, is advancing across the country. So thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're busy and I'll try to get you through. Um, you know, for the purpose of getting a good understanding about COVID, you know, we hear through the news, COVID, it's a virus, it's killing people, there's no stopping it, it's traveling all over the world. Um, could you pretty much sum up what exactly is COVID and how it affects the human body? So the virus is called SARS-CoV-2, Sudden Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome 2 virus. So that's the name of the virus. And then the syndrome of getting sick with it is it's called COVID-19, so coronavirus you know, infectious disease 19 is because it started in 2019. And so the virus is SARS-CoV-2, the syndrome is COVID-19. And <clears throat> the virus appeared to emanate out of a virology lab in Wuhan, China. And it, it looked like a common coronavirus that was manipulated. Uh, it's, it's about 80% the same as SARS-1 virus that affected China, affected parts of Canada. Uh, but, uh, but this is much different. It looked like it was manipulated to be a, a much more powerful or virulent uh, uh, organism, uh, much more contagious. And then as everyone knows, it spread across the world. And the original wild-type virus that hit Milan and then over at New York, uh, in Detroit, in New Jersey, that was a very powerful virus. And I remember the very first case we had here in Dallas, he got off a plane from New York, and a guy about my age, he died within two days in our ICU. Uh, it was a tremendously virulent virus. It subsequently mutated. So the virus over time is sequentially mutated. And we've had, now we've renamed the variants. So alpha is the British variant and beta is South Africa. Gamma is um, uh, the Brazilian variant. Now the delta is the Indian variant. Uh, we have lambda coming out of Peru and eta coming out of California. These mutants means the virus is just going to change. There's are always different uh, different changes. When the virus tries to copy its, itself and replicate, it makes mistakes. And then the mistakes cause variants. And those variants are in the background. And what we've seen now 
with the vaccine program, it's allowed the emergence of dominant variants. And right now, for the first time, we have a super dominant variant called Delta. Doug, the, in comparison to the flu, heart disease, I mean, COVID's killed thousands of people. Uh, when you compare all the, the different variations of illness, is it the lead cause of death right now? I mean, is it, did more people die of the flu as compared to COVID and we just don't have a grip on COVID? What does it look like as far as that goes? The CDC, I think, correctly indicates that of all the deaths with COVID, let's say we're at 635,000 deaths in the United States, that only 10% uh, was the only problem COVID-19. That means 90% of the time there was some other problem, heart failure, emphysema, uh, you know, dementia, some advanced uh, other disease. We know that the, the mortalities are strikingly related to age where younger individuals are protected from death and hospitalization, but when we get over age 50, there's greater than 1% chance of hospitalization and death, and it really advances. People up in the 80s and 90s, watch out. The risks of death and hospitalization can be quite high. So it's very amenable to age, risk stratification, and then we add on other factors, heart, lung disease, kidney disease, prior cancer, obesity, asthma, diabetes. So, uh, uh, the, so currently, um, COVID-19 is up there as a leading cause of death. Normally in the United States, it's, it's, uh, death is 40% cancer, 40% heart disease, and 20% other causes. So COVID-19 is kind of wedged in there. Uh, but if a patient with heart failure or coronary heart disease died of COVID, they would have been categorized as COVID for that year as opposed to heart disease. So those numbers may be a little bit skewed when we look at it in totality. Um, the COVID uh, response globally, um, was, is it warranted of what we're seeing, you know, globally shutting down and uh, no one able to go to work or stores not open? Is that a response that, you know, is overkill or do you think it really does have an impact? Initially, I don't think we knew. Uh, but I can tell you, I'm trained in public health. I've, you know, I have a degree in this. I've studied epidemiology. <clears throat> and I think where we are now, we could look at almost every aspect of our pandemic response and, and, and criticize it and find fault in it. And I testified in the U.S. Senate on November 19th last year in the kind of really the historic Senate hearings on early treatment. And I presented to the America the four pillars of pandemic response where we ought to have some effort on trying to reduce the spread of the virus. Uh, we should have a big focus on early treatment. That would be the second pillar. Hospital care to try to have that as high as quality as possible. And then the last would be vaccination or getting immunity. But we should have had a balanced approach on this. And I think your listeners would understand that the approach has been very imbalanced. It's pretty much been focused on masks and lockdowns and then on vaccination. And there's been almost no effort on treatment. Now, only about 1% of Americans have gotten COVID-19. So my viewpoint, once we understood the virus and we understood how to treat it, we should have just solely focused on the 1%. If we would have been really laser focused on early treatment, we would have reduced the spread of disease, we would have reduced the duration and intensity of symptoms, and then hospitalization and death would be minimized. So all the focus should be on early treatment. Now, fortunately, this did happen, happened in the United States. Uh, there's a lot of effort now on it. We have major organizations uh, behind it. It's happening in Europe. Uh, the hospitals are relatively empty. And we, you know, even though we can have flares of COVID, we have a focus on early treatment. But I can tell you, we've had zero help 
from our public health authorities. They almost never mention treatment in any of their press briefings. That's true. What we heard about was lockdown and, you know, keeping the country shut down. So, you know, for the most part, it, it just seems, and I, I believe you said this in your testimony, the only avenue for this pandemic was vaccine. And it sounds like there may have been other avenues. Am I correct or no? That's true. You know, I wrote an opinion editorial last summer in The Hill, and the title of it was The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 Vaccine Program. And I felt at that time we were gambling way too much on a vaccine because we know for respiratory illnesses, vaccines don't work very well. They don't work very well for flu. We knew for SARS-CoV-1, the vaccines failed. And now we are going to use brand new genetic transfer technologies that had failed in other genetic diseases. They failed in, in heart failure and cancer and Fabry's disease. So we had like failure, 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 and suddenly we were going to pull this out and have a vaccine program. So I was skeptical it was even gonna work. And, uh, and then of course the issues on safety have really come to the forefront with only two months of observation. They recruited patients in the trials that weren't even exposed to COVID. You know, the rates of COVID, even in the placebo arm of the randomized trials was less than 1%. So they recruited basically a bunch of people who were dodging COVID. So we didn't have any fair evaluation of the vaccines when they came out of the gate. Uh, and then once they were utilized in the population, we've really seen a tremendous uh, damage uh, in terms of uh, safety and injuries in the population. Can the government mandate everyone to get an experimental vaccine? I mean, for the most part, the CDC hasn't approved it. The FDA hasn't approved the vaccine. I mean, when I say approve, the CDC is saying get vaccinated, but the FDA is the one that really says this drug is safe. And that hasn't happened yet. So... I guess for a lack of a better description, um, you know, is this an experimental vaccine that is being, you know, pretty much forced upon every American? And, you know, I'm pro-vaccine and, and this isn't an anti-vaccine um, podcast, but uh, I'm just trying to get clarification as to, you know, if this is something that can be mandated. In my view, it can't. Uh, the consent form, if you look at the consent form, uh, and I looked at the one at my institution, it, there, it says right up front, so this is voluntary. This is purely voluntary. The consent form says, we don't know if it's going to work and we don't know if it's safe. The consent form just says that flat out, you're volunteering for the program. And the consent form says it's investigational. Investigational does mean research. All right. Now, uh, in a paper published by Bruno and colleagues uh, from, 50, from 57 authors, 17 countries, they pointed out that this research program has no critical event committee, no data safety monitoring board, no human ethics board. Uh, it, it really has no safety mechanisms to prevent injury to people once it got going. And uh, Americans would realize we're at August now. Uh, the sponsors of the program are the CDC and the FDA. They've still not held their first briefing on safety. So it is alarming. We should be having safety updates once a week. And if people were being harmed with the vaccine, we should have done something immediately. Uh, we, week by week by week went by. And we're now we're alarmed to realize, oh, my Lord, we just we haven't heard a word about safety. My patients ask me every day. They say, doctor, I'm going to be forced to take the vaccine. Which one is working the best? Which one is has the least number of breakthroughs? I said, I can't tell you because the CDC and FDA have given us no information. They say, which one's the safest? I said, I can't tell you. I can just tell you that the numbers that are related 
in the, C the CDC VAERS report, and the CDC keeps telling doctors and patients to go to VAERS, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, and look at the data, the numbers that the CDC is putting in there are astronomical. I mean, there's been 545,000 uh, registered and certified injuries, over 200,000 uh, deaths, hospitalizations, or urgent care visits. I mean, people take the vaccine and stuff really happens quickly. Uh, an analysis by McLachlan and colleagues of the deaths indicated that about 86% of the deaths were no other explanation. It almost was like they took the vaccine and they died and, and showed that about the deaths, about half of them occur within 48 hours, 80% occur within a week. It looks like the vaccine caused the death. And then an analysis by Rose, the American Journal of Public Health and Policy and Law, showed that, that of those who survived, the non-fatal injuries are in the heart, the brain, the immunologic system and the hematologic system. So this is for a vaccine, this is nowhere close to being safe. I presented at the Heritage Foundation in Washington that actually a mortality signal of alarm uh, could have been seen looking backwards January 22nd. At only 27 million Americans vaccinated, we had already exceeded a limit of mortality that would have been even acceptable from a, from a random background perspective. You know, you keep this in mind. We, we, we have 20 million kids go to college every year where they get the meningococcal vaccine. There's zero deaths, zero. And as we sit here today, the CDC is telling us at 168 million Americans vaccinated that 11,000 have died due to the vaccine. Wow. It's extraordinary. You know, if you think about it, you had said earlier, 600,000 people have died of COVID. And as of now, we have basically a half a million people who are injured from the vaccine. So, you know, we're not dying from it, but well, technically we are. You just had 11,000 die. So those numbers are pretty close together. Uh, well, you, you, brought up the, you brought up the issue of moral hazard. And uh, I was interviewed on Dr. Drew, uh, his show, the TV. Um, he's an internist, but he really focuses on psychiatry. And Dr. Drew, we talked about this, and I and 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 what I hear from people say, "Come on, COVID's a bad disease. Six hundred and thirty-five Ameri thousand Americans have died. Um, uh, you know, there's going to be some deaths with the vaccine." I've heard people say, "Small price to pay." Uh, you know that there's going to be people dying with the vaccine. Tough luck. Just take the vaccine. And uh, I talked to Dr. Drew about this, and he said, "You know, he thinks America was psychologically ready for this. That the vaccine, if it, even if it caused great harm or injury," Um, of those who took the vaccine and survived it, they would have no problem uh, forcing the vaccine on others. Wow. Wow. I, you know, there was a bit of desperation. It, the country was in lockdown and people were out of work and people were dying. And, you know, when you look at the numbers and it's less than 1%, uh, the news media basically had, you know, everyone dying of COVID. And I, I understand early on the fear factor, but there had to be a time for treatment. Um, the Delta variant of the Mac, uh, vaccine, it's now coming out and drawn a lot of attention. Is this a stronger aspect of COVID? And, and how are we going to treat this? Um, you know, you think we're facing another shutdown? No, the Delta variant is not a stronger uh, variant. It's actually a weaker variant. So over time, as the virus mutates, you know, it came out of the Chinese lab. It was really strong and deadly. It's progressively less deadly as it mutates. So um, we know that Delta now is the most mutated. There's seven mutations there in the spike protein. Uh, the uh, most recent 
United Kingdom uh, variant technical report that came out August 6th indicates that there are 20 additional mutations that are occurring on top of Delta. So it's um, because it's a less, it's a weaker virus. It's spreading a bit more. The reason why you hear about Delta so much is that it looks like the vaccines are not working. So now people who are fully vaccinated are getting the Delta just as easy as somebody not fully vaccinated. And so we have data out of Israel. It just had a big spike now where, um, you know, well over uh, 80% of all their Delta cases have been fully vaccinated. Uh, over 75% in Iceland and Singapore fully vaccinated. United Kingdom is a bit different because they have a different blend of vaccines. They're running about 50% fully, uh, fully or partially vaccinated with Delta. They have over 300,000 cases they've categorized. Now, importantly, Delta, the mortality in the United Kingdom is a good place to look, 300,000 cases of those sick enough to be seen in the ER. That's, that's who they record. Uh, the mortality is way, way less than 1%. But those who die of Delta, 65% were fully vaccinated. So um, if we look outside the United States, it looks like the vaccines are failing against Delta. They don't protect, protect against hospitalization or death. Uh, but fortunately, Delta is a much milder virus. So outside the United States, the vaccine isn't protecting against Delta. Is it working inside the United States? Well, we don't have uh, data like the United Kingdom. United Kingdom every week is putting out a technical report where they have the variants. They know uh, they know who's alive and who's dead. And they just put out, it's, it's a wonderful report. The CDC is, is again, giving us no information. There hasn't been a single report on how the vaccines are doing uh, in terms of protection, not a single report on safety. We simply, there are just government issue talking points. And that is, the Why is that? take it. Another talking point is that this is a crisis of the unvaccinated. So it's just a talking point without data. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, the CDC should have all the data. They should be monitoring it and yet it's not being distributed. Uh, is there a reason for it? Why, why do you think that might be? Yeah, the CDC actually has all the data on safety <clears throat> and they should have data on which vaccines are working better than others. That's the biggest question now. People are being forced into the vaccine. Sure. We know that 52% of Americans don't want the vaccine. The vaccine centers have been empty for months now. And despite all the raffles and coercion and bribes, no one will take the vaccine. So now it's being forced on them. They don't want it. And so they're saying, listen, if I have to take the vaccine, I want to know which one's working the best and which one's the safest. The CDC holds all the data, but won't release it to Americans. They simply say safe and effective, take the vaccine. And um, I think what they've done is they have prioritized this idea of getting a needle in every arm, reducing vaccine hesitancy now by brute force and uh, it's backfiring on them because Americans, you know, again, about half Americans took the vaccine. They took it patriotically. Um, like you, I've taken all my vaccines and I took two vaccines this year. I took flu vaccine and shingles vaccine. Um, uh, but as things come out of the gate, my patients here, I didn't encourage them or discourage them, but about 70% of my patients here in Dallas, they took the vaccine. These are seniors, people with heart disease and lung disease. They took it in, in December, January, and February, but I became uncomfortable in March. We were at 1,600 deaths, and it looked like there was no concern whatsoever. There was no analysis on who was dying, what could we do about it with the vaccine? You know, was it occurring in older people or diabetics or people who had previously had COVID? 
because we know patients with prior COVID, their, their system has already been kind of damaged by the virus. The immune system's already been kind of revved up. Uh, the FDA and the manufacturers in the clinical trials strictly excluded COVID recovered patients. They, they knew it was trouble trying to inject a COVID recovered patient. So was it COVID recovered patients who felt forced into the vaccine? Are they the ones being injured and died? Only the CDC has the answers to these questions. And so far, the silence is deafening. Are there other drugs that are available to combat this? And is government holding them back? You know, some news stations say there are none. Then you hear stories that you can't get certain drugs. In New York State, the governor, you know, refused to allow certain drugs to take place here. Um, in India, they're getting some success with a drug called ivermectin. Uh, is that available here? And, and can you tell us about that? Well, Americans would recognize there's no window to the outside world now. So when was the last time we actually had an update about how the rest of the world is treating COVID-19? I'm in Texas here. I can tell you, we can fly a couple hours south in Central America, and they're handing out treatment kits. You don't hear about COVID wiping out Central America or wiping out the Caribbean. Not at all. In fact, they hand out treatment kits. So you're right. COVID-19 is easily treatable, easily treatable, and it's easily treatable early. And only those who are elderly with multiple medical problems, do they need treatment? Young people don't need treatment. It's only about a quarter of a typical American primary care practice that would ever need treatment. And you're right, we have available treatments here. Uh, our CDC and FDA, as well as our local medical centers or authorities, they've given no update or window to Americans on treatment. So every major medical center uh, in every major city in the United States has not offered any ambulatory treatment to patients, none. There's been no uh, treatment tents, there's been no protocols, there's been no billboards, no hotlines, nothing. There's been a complete shutdown by everybody on early treatment, despite having FDA EUA approved monoclonal antibodies. We originally had bemolivimab, which was the Lilly product. Uh, the, the virus became resistant to that, but now we have Regeneron, which is still working well, GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, America has pre-purchased 500 million doses of these monoclonal antibodies. President Trump got one of them. And shockingly, our major medical centers make no offering of this. There's no 100 hotline. Uh, there's never any mention it on TV. And seniors are struggling with this virus. They should be getting an infusion on day one. They should be stocked in nursing homes and urgent care centers sure. and emergency rooms. So the emergency use monoclonal antibodies uh, this is probably the biggest uh, uh, public health lapse I've ever seen. It is a massive, and, and you know, we went through all the effort to develop these uh, technologies. They're brand new, they're high tech, they work. I just got off the phone with a patient's husband who, who the wife got it. These things work. And it, all it takes is a doctor's phone call under EUA. And again, there's no mention. Uh, to America, it would be as if the monoclonal antibodies don't exist. And, and I tell you, it's an absolute blunder by our CDC and our media and our major academic medical centers by not making this a feature offering. Now, beyond the monoclonal antibodies, we have drugs that work in combination that the rest of the world is using. We have hydroxychloroquine supported by 200 studies now, huge studies, 30,000 patient studies. Hydroxychloroquine works great. Ivermectin, supported by 60 studies. Ivermectin is a bit more versatile than hydroxychloroquine because it works in the hospital, outside the hospital. We combine it with antibiotics, doxycycline, azithromycin, modestly helpful. We use inhaled budesonide, 
budesonide, an inhaled steroid supported by two randomized trials. We use oral steroids, prednisone, dexamethasone, supported by a large meta-analysis of a diverse array of trials. It works fine. We use colchicine, uh, a repurposed uh, gout drug, a simple drug we give once a day for 30 days, supported by a huge randomized trial of over 4,000 patients, randomized placebo-controlled, double-blind. And then lastly, we use aspirin in high doses, uh, 325. And then for serious cases, we use blood thinners. My favorite is to use injectable Lovenox. So if we use four to six drugs in combination, I can tell you, we can treat people in their 60s, 70s, 80s. I've treated people in their 90s, and I've prevented hospitalization and death. And I can tell you, if you take a 90-year-old and you give them COVID and you deny them all these treatments, I guarantee that 90-year-old will end up in the hospital and end up on a ventilator and be absolutely miserable. So early treatment is a, a, an ethical, moral, and clinical priority. And our whole country has basically overlooked this outside of some hero doctors. Now, fortunately, the heroes organized into organizations. So we have the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. They were the first hero organization to support early treatment. They have a home treatment guide, telemedicine networks. They've got it all laid out. Now we have the Frontline Critical Care Consortium. Uh, they feature ivermectin-based uh, protocols. We have American frontline doctors. These organizations basically came together to save America from COVID-19. And really, in, in late December, early January, we crushed the curve, just like what happened in India, just like what happened in Mexico City. And we've never really had any escape from the curve. We're battling the most recent Delta outbreak, um, but we're getting through it. The hospitals are empty. I'm sitting in a hospital right now, major city, very little COVID. So we're hearing you know, some scary reports here and there, um, but I can tell you, that patients are being treated by the many thousands per day and hospitalization and death are being prevented. Doug, with all the information you're sharing with us, I mean, surely there's thousands of other doctors that are in agreement with you. There has to be. You can't be the only guy in the country that's, that's knowledgeable in this. Um, is there a coalition of doctors that can push back against the CDC and, and start to demand answers? And so why is that not happening? Or is it happening? Well, as I've mentioned, you know, there's a million doctors in the United States. There's half a million um, uh, mid-level providers. Uh, there are a few scattered hospitals around the country. There's one down in Houston that's kind of a lead hospital that uses these innovative uh, approaches, um, especially with ivermectin. Uh, there are four national telemedicine services, 15 regional services, uh, but the number of doctors that are considered early treating doctors for COVID-19 are still very few to try to manage the whole country. I tell you, my phone is blowing up every day. I get so many phone calls and we really need engagement from the large body of doctors who have just not lifted a finger to help sick patients with COVID-19 at home. They literally have just been oblivious to the entire problem or basically said, listen, I'm not gonna treat COVID, nothing works until the patients come into the hospital. And that's Impressive. been a very, nihilistic approach. So we, we, I've always taken the precautionary principle, which basically says, listen, we're going to find drugs that have a signal of benefit and acceptable safety. We're going to use them, even if we don't have large randomized trials. At this stage, we need randomized trials of over 20,000 patients with four to six drugs. I can tell you those trials are not even planned. So for those doctors that say, you don't have enough evidence, I can tell you, we're never going to have enough evidence. It's like, it's like a bleeding wound People say, we don't have enough evidence to use that, that roll of, of gauze. I said, listen, I don't need the evidence. I'm going to plug the wound. 
And I don't need anybody to tell me I need more evidence on hydroxychloroquine. I'm going to use it. Ivermectin, budesonide, I'm going to use it. And, you know, it's interesting because everyone wants to pick on hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. It's so controversial in some countries. Dr. Brentios in South uh, America and Dr. Chetty in South Africa, they've been so inventive. They can treat COVID-19 without hydroxy and ivermectin. They use a combination of antihistamines, uh, steroids, and anticoagulants. They treat the back end of the syndrome. And again, they prevent hospitalization and death. So, uh, you know, the naysayers want to pick on something. Uh, particularly, they really love to pick on hydroxychloroquine. So it doesn't matter. I can treat them without hydroxy. It's not a big deal. And I've done it in my practice. I treat patients every day with COVID-19 in my practice. I'm enormously successful. Your congressman in Texas, Congressman McCall, I, I personally dealt with him at the peak of COVID when New York City was on fire from it. And he was involved with a treatment through doctors here in New York and in Texas that was through an IV. And within a day, people were recovering very quickly. Um, I personally witnessed it with neighbors of mine. Um, one was hospitalized and the hospital refused to administer it. They died. Um, the husband who was um, homesick with COVID and 72 years old, I believe, uh, received the injection and he survived. He was up you know, singing in Italian two days later. Um, he tried very hard to get this into the hospitals. Um, I would suggest anywhere along the line, you know, he's an outstanding congressman who really is trying to make um, way and getting answers to this. And he's right in your own backyard. But uh, I've, I personally experienced that where some doctors just don't want to deal with it. And we had a major hospital here just refused to treat people with it. Um, one other question, Doc, and I know you got to go. And this is very fascinating. The debate over wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Dr. Fauci, who's had airtime from day one, has had multiple opinions on this. And you know, he changes every so often. Our elected officials are wearing them, not wearing them. They're getting caught all over the place. Does it help? Is it something that's preventive? Some people tell me that it has absolutely no bearing on uh, spreading COVID. What are your thoughts on it? You know, masks have never been my signature issue. <clears throat> and I've uh, been on Fox News and other stations. And I've said there's been way too much focus on a mask. Every time we mention a mask, we're taking our focus off treating sick patients. Remember, ma masks and vaccines don't help people get better. Um, uh, treatment does. And so I'm in the hospital right now. So I have a, I have a mask, okay? So I can, I can wear a mask. And when I leave this room, I'll wear a mask. And, and I do it out of courtesy. I mean, I, I've personally had COVID. I've recovered. I know I can't transmit it. I can't receive it. I can have a COVID patient cough in my face. I can't get it. I wear a mask out of courtesy. Um, but, I, you know, people shouldn't have any illusions that a mask is going to save them. They could wear 15 masks. It's not going to save them. It's pretty obvious the virus is going to kind of move around and attack who it wants to attack. If people feel more comfortable wearing a mask, it's fine. It's not my signature issue. Um, you know, healthcare, I think dentists, doctors, hairdressers, people at close range, maybe if we had a big cough or something, it would prevent that. Uh, so I'm not against masks, but I have a, no illusions about them. They certainly don't work. Uh, there's been 12 randomized trials showing masks. Public masking definitely doesn't work, including the Dan mask trial on COVID-19. So to make little kids wear masks or you see people outside biking, wearing masks or driving in a car alone, the masks has almost come to symbolize a, 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 a mass psychosis or a neurosis of, of fear. 
Um, we just shouldn't make such a big deal out of it. If people want to wear a mask out of courtesy, fine. But it's not the end all or be all. It's much more important that grandmother gets treatment right now. Sure. That's a million times more important than wearing masks. Let me say one more thing. For kids and going to school, I just got to ask that question. <laughs> yeah, instead of instead of having all the focus on masks, the school should have a policy about sick kids because we know that the kids don't transmit it unless they're sick. We know adults don't transmit it unless they're sick. So instead of making a bunch of healthy kids wear masks, what we should do is have a policy that when a kid starts to feel sick, we should have education classes about feeling a little bit sick, like the onset of a cold. Get that kid away from the other kids and have flexible teacher work schedules, family schedules to have the child go home. That's it. We have to actually be perceptive about illness and get people away from others. If anything I've been sensitized to um, is, uh, you know, I want to say a few years ago, if I had a cold, I'd probably show up to work. Not anymore. Not anymore. I think anybody with any type of cold symptoms use good judgment and stay away. The virus is transmitted when people are sick. It's not transmitted when people are well. And, and even the World Health Organization says no more testing. This business of testing the athletes when they're well or testing people at the borders or what have you, none of that was ever approved by the FDA or any regulatory agencies. And it's completely worthless. All it does is generate false positive test results. Even the World Health Organization says stop it. So the next time you have to go somewhere and someone goes, well, you have to get a test. You can say, listen, just walk past that. That's not even that's not even regulatory approved. It's, it has no support from any uh, bodies whatsoever. Even the CDC says, stop doing it. That's incredible because there's so much false information and everyone's under the idea that you must have the test, even to go back to work. Uh, the mayor of the city here is talking about, you know, testing employees. And I also have come to learn, I don't know if this is true because I've been able to lock it down, but... Uh, the test doesn't really differentiate between COVID or having the flu. It, well, it, see, yeah, now you really open the can of worms. You know, uh -oh. the original, one of the original methodologies for the PCR test was developed at the CDC. So the CDC methodology became a base for a lot of the laboratory-derived methods. It was at my center. I know that for sure. Um, and then what happened over time is the manufacturers developed their own innovation. But what we don't know now is how many of the people who were, were head testing that relied upon the CDC methodology, in fact, had the flu, but they were misdiagnosed as having COVID. So you can imagine someone coming in with a fever, like say a senior from a nursing home sure. with a fever, and they actually had influenza, which is common in the wintertime, sure. but they were diagnosed with COVID, particularly around December. That's when we were getting slammed. We were getting slammed during the middle of flu season. And they were actually misdiagnosed as COVID. You know how many people must have gotten remdesivir, which is toxic to the liver, steroids, which they didn't need, get slammed into isolation, which they didn't need. You know, they didn't get Tamiflu. They didn't get the other supportive things that they needed. And so it was probably countless numbers of seniors were misdiagnosed with COVID when in fact they had the flu because the CDC test could not discern, discern between flu and, flu and COVID. And so it automatically categorize people as having COVID. And so people were oriented towards diagnosing COVID. The hospital was getting reimbursed for COVID. Everything was COVID, COVID, COVID. And, and when we came out of flu season, everyone said we had no flu cases, like flu went away. And, yeah. you know, there was, there was some years, I mean, a year, a couple of years ago in 2017, I think we, think we had 70,000 flu deaths and we had hundreds of thousands of cases. Suddenly 
this year was no flu because I think everyone was misdiagnosed as COVID. And I wonder how many of those cases in December, our big peak was actually influenza and it was misdiagnosed and mistreated as COVID. Wow. Doug, this information is really astounding and yet we don't hear it on the news on a daily basis. I mean, this, this is factual information you're sharing with us. Um, why is it that you think the news media is not covering this? And, you know, social media shuts people down for certain things that are related to the vaccine or talking about COVID. Um, I, I'm assuming they, they got to be watching everything you say. Uh, are you getting labeled as the crazy doctor or are the others that join in behind you saying that, you know, Dr. McCall is 100 percent correct? Well, you know, the Federation of State Medical Boards that controls our medical licenses put out a warning that any doctor that gets out on the media and gives any misinformation about COVID, we could have our medical license uh, under threat or have it removed. And you know, I have patients in the hospital right now that rely on me having a valid medical license. So if you noticed in my presentation today, I am pinpoint, I am citing the data, the technical reports, the CDC guidance, I'm citing the evidence uh, down to, you know, first author and citation and when it was. So I am pinpoint on medical information and I haven't given an ounce of misinformation and I haven't given an ounce of freewheeling with my opinions. But other doctors have. I mean, last night there was a doctor on uh, CNN and they showed his clip on my part of uh, the Ingram angle. And he basically made the comment that um, all the evidence, in his opinion, points to the fact that the vaccine immunity is better than the natural immunity. And when he said that on TV, he actually gave misinformation to America yeah. because the, the evidence is just the opposite. And I cited CDC data, May 1st, they had 10,000 vaccine failure cases. Uh, and during that time, they had zero natural immunity cases. I could have gone further and cited the Cleveland Clinic study showing those who had natural immunity had zero chance of getting COVID-19 again, even if they were exposed to it. And we can go on and on and on. So, you know, misinformation abounds. And I think doctors like that doctor are going to be at risk of having the medical license uh, pulled. I am pinpoint on my citations. And if I ever was threatened, um, I'd have a great legal case uh, to support how careful I am. But what, what you're asking is, why is there such a concealment of safety and efficacy information on the vaccine? And why is there such a suspicion of early treatment? That is overt. That is a very overt pre-stated program is called the Trusted News Initiative. All of your listeners should know about this. In December, it was announced that major media and social media were all joining forces to form the Trusted News Initiative. And this is, you know, BBC put this out on the wires. You can go find it on the internet. I heard of it. It, it says that they are gonna completely promote the vaccine as the only strategy and do everything to suppress anything that could get in, in the way of that. So suppress anything on early treatment, suppress anything on vaccine safety, um, and scrub it off the internet is only going to promote mass vaccination. It's called the Trusted News Initiative. So as Americans are just trying to find out how to treat COVID-19, or they're trying to find out basic information, they're fighting the overt censorship of the Trusted News Initiative. That's unbelievable. Totally unbelievable. And it explains why things are being shut down. And we're not hearing from more doctors like yourself that are working on this. I mean, the doctor I dealt with, with Congressman McCall, no one even knows he exists. And he's been helping on 
unbelievable amount of people have had COVID. Doc, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're very busy. You got other things going on right now, but I want to thank you. Um, you know, a lot of people are dying for this information and you know, you've been very enlightening to all of us. So I want to thank you. I'd love to get you back again with more questions, but you know, we can do that at another date. Um, stay safe. Good luck to you. Thank you for taking the time and, um, you know, hopefully things get better for everyone. Uh, for everyone watching, thank you for watching to the point. We'll see you next time.